episode three. Well, let's go. Hey, I'm Alex. And I'm Gabriel. And this is the third ever installment of Life on the Brink. And this one's all about the Kiwi. Not the people, not the fruit, but the weird little birds that run around New Zealand. And to be specific, because we're nothing if not thorough, we're focusing on the Tokawika or Southern Brown Kiwi, which is one of the five different species of Kiwi. If you maybe didn't know that there are five different species of Kiwi, that's all good. Neither did I. And there's no exam at the end of this. So chill, <laughs> breathe. Everything's going to be fine. Tokaweka kiwis live in the southwest of New Zealand and are listed as vulnerable, mainly due to predation from a bunch of introduced predators. We had an absolute blast talking with our guest on the show. He's one of those people who can just so casually tell you one of the funniest stories you've ever heard. I met Dennis years back while doing my undergrad, and he introduced me to the world of kiwis through my master's research project last year. He is constantly mountaineering and rock climbing and found himself deep in the depths of a geology PhD when he realized in his own words, rocks don't need saving and jumped onto the conservation train. He eventually found his way to a role in the Haast Kiwi Sanctuary and now plays hide and seek with kiwis on almost a daily basis. So get ready for some cool kiwi facts, amazing battle stories from tracking kiwis and a bucket load of Jurassic Park references as we chat to biodiversity ranger Dennis Stojanovic. Here we go. <laughs> just because i haven't spoken to you in a while and you're always up to cool stuff um have you done any trips lately um maybe can't remember. Not really. I'm always up to something, but um, I spent a few days. I spent a few days down on uh, Stewart Island, and uh, just sort of tramped around and looked at sea lions and saw some other kiwi and things. But I haven't been on any big missions or anything for a while. Well, I I I obviously know a bit more of your background, but um, just for everyone else, like how did how did you I guess, get into conservation and, and biodiversity work? Um, yeah, good question. I, I'm not sure I know myself. Um, <laughs> it's sort of pretty roundabout, but so I've been always been pretty outdoorsy and sort of out there and in nature and stuff. But um, yeah, so formally that meant um, I did a degree, I did an undergrad in science and uh, I wanted to be a marine biologist. And at some point I got distracted by geology and uh, spent a while pretending to be a geologist. Um, then decided uh, at some point that, ro- that rocks get by pretty well without me, so I might as well do something that um, that I can uh, sort of see see an impact or yeah, you know, try and make some change. I know. Is it, is it the, there were the two big DAs? So there's David Anderborough, which I don't think anyone's been anyone in conservation or natural history can say there not inspired by, by Sir David. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the other one was, the other one was Douglas Adams, um, and, uh, and Mark Car- Carwardine. And so they they had a book and a, and a radio series called, um, last chance to see, which sort of, yeah, got me thinking about the, 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 the unique habitats and animals that were losing because of the way humans sort of are just, um, imposing themselves on on the environment hey there uh so this douglas adams guy he mentions is one of two people behind a radio series called last chance to see and so this radio series aired in 1989 and dennis actually managed to get us a copy of it and sent it to us and it is incredible it uh it it gave us a lot of ideas early on for what this podcast was going to be because he was what, one of the, if not the first people we sort of unofficially booked for this podcast. Yeah, yeah. He was the, the first, first unofficial guest. <laughs> um, but yeah, he gave us this, uh, this radio show to listen to and it, it gave us some fantastic ideas for the show. And it's funny because I actually knew of Last Chance to See because of the documentary that followed along uh, like decades later with Stephen Fry. And I didn't realize that it started with this radio documentary. And so Dennis went on to talk to us about how 
his journey in conservation led him to New Zealand uh, in part to find himself, but also chasing after this other rare bird that New Zealand has that starts with K, the kakapo, uh, and how in chasing the kakapo, he got sucked up in the world of kiwis. It was sort of when, when I quit my PhD in geology, I wrote down on a piece of paper, kayak, fjordland, sea kakapo. Then I jumped over to New Zealand to sort of find myself for a while and found a job work, uh, found a job with the Department of Conservation um, just as a general operations ranger for a few months. So this Kiwi job just sort of popped up and you just figured you'd give it a try, see how it went? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I've been like, Kākāpō was was my goal, <laughs> um, and I spent before the before the house job. I spent a while um, volunteering and eventually as a contractor with some community biodiversity trusts doing predator control. So at that stage, I was just sort of interested in. I was really interested in just getting involved in um, that sort of on the ground work. Um, uh, yeah, so I suppose it started with with doing that predator control stuff um, and eventually weaseled my way uh, into a position as a biodiversity ranger with a biodiversity team in Haast, which is a, probably about as remote as you can get in New Zealand and still get a beer. <laughs> the important things. <laughs> yeah, and at the, at the time, uh, it didn't even have mobile coverage, but uh, we've, we've got, we have that now. It's not very good. But it's there. <laughs> That's good to hear. Um, I know. I know that you are. You, you you recently had an opportunity to get like I guess start working with the kakapo more sort of permanently. Yeah. But um, you've decided to stay with the kiwis. Is, is there, I guess what what made you pick kiwis? Oh, they've grown on me. Um, <laughs> yeah. The the so the um, taxon that we work with is the uh, Haas Tokaweka, and they're renowned for being extremely fast runners and not, and not cooperating. <laughs> um, so I, I, I quite like the challenge. Um, <laughs> but the, the other thing is that um, like I, I'm pretty lucky um, in the job that I've got and uh, like the Kakapo gets so much more publicity. They have, no, they have no problem getting people who are passionate and skilled to work with them. But uh, Toko worker need, need a bit more um, help, I suppose. They're one of the... Uh... The species that go, I guess, a bit unheard of. They don't have as much publicity in. Yeah, I mean, like it's getting to getting people to stay in Haas long enough to um, keep the program going is, is can be difficult. Well, we might as well jump into the, the Kiwi stuff. And I mean, growing up in Australia, the New Zealand right there, most most Australians probably know what a Kiwi looks like or what a Kiwi is. But uh, for those or anybody that doesn't, do you want to have a go at describing what they actually are? <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> so one, it's a bird, uh, about the size of a chicken and, uh, with a sort of long, long pointy curved bill. Looks like it doesn't have wings, but, um, un- under, under the feathers, it, there are sort of vestigial little winglets, but evolutionary people call it an honorary, honorary mammal. Um, <laughs> they, f- they feel that ground dwelling mammal niche. It's fairly well known in New Zealand, but New Zealand, because it broke off from Gondwana sort of 80 million years ago, all the life here evolved in isolation. The founding ecology was bird heavy and mammal poor. So the only native uh, mammals to New Zealand are a few species of bats and I suppose um, sea mammals. So birds had had free reign to do what, uh, to fill all those different niches. So that resulted in a pretty, pretty extraordinary sort of bunch of uh, birds, <laughs> uh, p- probably 40% of which are extinct now. <laughs> um, to, sorry, to go into the, like, the niche thing, I mean, what makes it an honorary, honorary mammal compared to something similar you might find on a different continent? So it's, it doesn't fly, and it, well, it's lost its ability to fly. It's sort of adapted to ground foraging, nocturnal behaviors. Its bill is sort of designed for um, probing in the ground for earthworms and invertebrates, and occasionally some other other things like um, colder, which is a type of native freshwater crayfish. The the feathers have developed into 
function more like fur rather than um, um, sort of flight. Is there much of a difference then between the different types of kiwis? Do they have many different differences between them? So there's the, the sort of uh, currently there are five um, described species. Uh, they're all um, in the genus Apteryx, uh, which means no wing. So a without pater wing. So they do have wings, but they don't use them. Um, they're all have got the same similar body shape. Previously, they they were sort of they were pretty widespread throughout New Zealand and uh, at least on the South Island, most of the species overlapped. Uh, but the the way they're distributed now, they're pretty pretty distinct from each other. All right, let's take a minute here to get into Tokoweka taxonomy. There are five different species of kiwis across New Zealand, and we got Dennis to break down each of them for us. Coming from the North Island, we have the creatively named North Island brown kiwis. I suppose your North Island brown is your your typical kiwi that is, is yeah it's sort of your archetype. So when most people think about kiwis, these are the ones they're thinking of. They've got some pretty interesting um, behavior. They often have multiple eggs in a clutch and their breeding seasons can extend all year round, which is fantastic for conservation. Kiwis number two and three are the Great Spotted Kiwi or Roroa and Little Spotted Kiwi or Kiwi Puku Puku. Great spots, uh, as, as they describe, they're sort of big and spotty, little spotted, a little and spotty. Uh, the Great Spotted Kiwi is in the north part of the South Island Little spotted kiwi is the smallest of all the kiwis and is mainly kept on offshore islands. Species number four is the roe, otherwise known as the okurito kiwi. And it's located in one kiwi sanctuary on the west coast of the South Island. And the last species of kiwi is the southern brown or tokoweka. The tokoweka are similar to North Island browns except they're a bit more ginger. So they've got this reddish tinge to their feathers. They have one egg per year with defined breeding seasons. It's fairly uncommon to have a double clutch. It's basically, they're, they're restricted to one egg per year per pair. Uh, so Tokoika is split into four different groups. You've got the Rakora, Tokoika from Stewart Island, which is south of the bottom of the South Island. <laughs> then you've got the North and South Fjordland groups. And so the Fjordlands is on the Southern part of the South Island. And then you've got the Haas population, which Dennis works on. And that is located in the middle of the west coast of the South Island. They're all genetically, behaviorally, and slightly morphologically distinct. And when we asked him how many Tokoweka kiwis there are in each of those four populations, the man came prepared. I have here the kiwi recovery plan, which gives me statistics. Yeah, so, so I can actually just give you numbers and can't, I can't be blamed for it. <laughs> so Rakiora, we've got, uh, they've got um, 2018 estimate is 12,300. Uh, South Fjordland, 3,900. North Fjordland, 8,200. Um, and in Haas, we've got 450. Awesome. As, as Tokoweka, they're, they're nationally endangered, um, but the Haas Tokoweka... Um, uh, from a ma- from a management perspective, is naturally critical. Um, are these numbers ri- are like stable? Are they are they rising or are they going down? So the Rakiora Tokoweka are pretty stable, I believe. The Fjordland birds populations are in decline. Two percent a year, I think, is the estimated decline at the moment. And with Haas Tokoweka, the population is rising. But it's through it's only through intensive management, and so we might be dealing with I think in the in the recovery plan we've got quoted as four percent um, population increases per annum, but um, we're dealing with a small number of birds still. Going further into that, um, what are the what are the biggest threats that kiwis face? Uh, the answer to all these things is is humans um, in in a way, but um, <laughs> the, the the main threats are predation by introduced animals. So uh, on the North Island, adult kiwi will get attacked by dogs and, and ferrets and things. But in areas where those things aren't so much of a problem, particularly in the remote areas down in, in Fjordland and where we are, the main threats are stoats, which generally don't prey directly on Tokoweka. They're sort of generally big enough and, and feisty enough to fend for themselves but um chicks will will get picked off pretty easily so overall where where predators are present about five five percent of chicks will survive to adulthood 
where there's some sort of predator control, it can be as high as 60%. Beyond that, I mean, there's the, the usual cases of uh, habitat loss and climate change, all the big ones. With habitat loss, is it like, I mean, for I feel like New Zealand is probably one of the few developed countries where habitat loss is maybe not the biggest driver. Is it, you know, because you came from Australia and went to New Zealand, is yeah. it kind of weird to see how much of an impact humans can have even without knocking all the trees down in an area just by introducing species? Yeah, it's like, it's it's pretty sh- pretty shocking. When So the biggest difference you see is when, when you go to a predator-free island and you see the, like, just the sheer, like, the cacophony of, of birds, bird life or bird song and birds flying around you. And you compare that to a forest on the mainland where there are predators and it's, it, it's just, I wouldn't say a wasteland, but it's just like, um, it's pretty quiet out there sometimes. <laughs> and yeah, and that's, that's just from, from people. You just really notice there's no birds around. Yeah. Um, or, or you'll just hear a few types of birds. I mean, bird diversity in New Zealand compared to Australia is pretty low. Uh, but it is very, it's very unique. Um, yeah, e- even in remote places, um, in national parks, y- you're always encountering um, modified environments because of introduced species. So. Um, so with these, I guess, the big threats, especially predation, what, what, what's, what's being done to sort of combat these threatened species? I mean, sorry, <laughs> the, the invasive, invasive species. species. Um, so specifically with Kiwi, uh, back in 2000, um, there were f- five so-called Kiwi sanctuaries set up, which uh, were areas that were set aside for intensive predator control and, um, and monitoring and population management. So I work in, specifically in the Haas Tokaweka sanctuary. Uh, part of my job is managing the trap network that covers 12,500 hectares. And uh, so most of these a standard trapping network is sort of uh, these things called Doc 200s, which are sort of beefed up rat trap, kill trap type things. So um, in, in wooden tunnels. So uh, you, bait, you bait it with a lure, your stoat, your target animal, hopefully goes in to check it out and then gets whacked on the head um, by, a, by a metal arm. Um, anyway, so you have all these tunnels set out through the landscape. Big trapping networks like that are, are fairly intensive, uh, but even then, um, uh, when you're talking about th- things like stoats, which have a, a pretty wide sort of home range or territory, and they're pretty clever, during a chi- uh, kiwi breeding season, you might be catching stoats, but you only need to miss a couple and you, you'll lose your chicks. So I reckon it's been about just over a year since you first taught me what a stoat was. <laughs> Do you want to explain <laughs> stoats? Sure. They are these incredibly adorable little mammals uh, and they're pretty crazy invasive predators in New Zealand. And so um, think of kind of like a ferret, but much smaller and cuter, somewhere between a ferret and a weasel in between that. (laughs) Um, And Dennis touched on how sort of cunning and invasive they are, but they really, they, they are, they're incredible. They can, I think they can cover up to a kilometer distance swimming so even if you're on an island they can make it there which is just insane (laughs) and yeah you do have to remind yourself that these things are really nasty invasive predators when you're looking at them because they look adorable uh but dennis also went on to say that one of the biggest challenges they have on Haas, as well as across new zealand when managing invasive predators like these stoats is uh, these things called masting events and so what masting events are, uh, there's uh, quite a few of the native tree groups uh, have these massive seed dumps every two to four years. And this becomes a huge problem because rats, invasive rats, feed on the seed, their populations explode. The stoats then feed on the rats and their populations explode. And then once the seed runs out, the rats begin to die and the stoats' food runs out. And so they begin attacking all sorts of wildlife to try and feed themselves. The kiwi looks like a pretty good deal. 
Oh yeah, a nice tasty snack on thick legs. And they basically <laughs> become collateral damage, but because there's just so many stoats after these booms, there's just a massive impact on the tiny populations of kiwis. Um, and a similar thing happened across the east coast of Australia recently in, in 2021 where there was a mouse plague. It's, it's a similar dynamic going on with the boom and bust cycles in New Zealand there. And this is becoming even more of a concern with climate change because it's predicted that climate change will increase the frequency of these masking events. So these aerial operations, aerial mm-hmm. baits are timed to coincide with these, um, uh, these mast periods. So the idea is you chuck out um, these 1080 baits, which are targeted towards rats and the rats will be because their food supply is dropping off they'll start hammering the um, 1080 baits they ingest the poison die and the stoats will then take the poisoned rats and get secondary poisoning there's sort of variable success but it's pretty effective it can be pretty effective if everything lines up i mean you're talking about how like it's uh, a pest management cycle that you're starting to understand is this something that you can just sort of see as being an ever ongoing process of just having to fight against these invasive species? Like, is there an end goal when you're doing this sort of stuff? So I think in 2016, the New Zealand government brought out this predator-free 2050 goal initiative to um, drive investment and enthusiasm. Um, and sort of it, the main, main thing is to get community buy-in and get, get the whole country on board to uh, knock out predators from the mainland, but specifically with a project that the target is uh, possums, rats, and stoats, uh, because they're they're the the big big ones. I mean, it's ambitious, but um, you've got to aim, you know, you've got to aim high. I mean, you've got to work towards getting rid of everything. Um, otherwise you will be stuck in a constant cycle of, of management. You're, you're, yeah, it's possible on a small scale. And so the, the driver of, of predator free 2050 is just is scaling, scaling that up to, I mean, New Zealand's just another Island. So I think it's achievable. It might be, not be 2050, but a lot, a lot of good will come out of it. Cool. I was just going to, uh, a bit of a, bit of a different question, but, um, when you're tracking these kiwis, and especially the ones in your sanctuary, how do you keep track of who's who? Do they all have individual radio transmitters? Do you can you can you tell them apart? <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, ki- kiwi are fairly uh, territorial. So um, an adult kiwi pair will establish a territory that they keep to themselves, and they'll pretty much keep it for life. <laughs> Kiwi are sort of like humans in that they're generally monogamous, but um, <laughs> generally, <laughs> but that doesn't mean people don't chop and change all the time. So, um, so to answer your question directly, we we monitor about fifty or sixty birds, which represent pairs, so sort of a hundred, hundred twenty birds. They at some point um, they will have been caught, um, usually through night catching um, or, or using detection dogs, the kiwi conservation dogs once once a pair has been caught oh sorry once a bird has been caught previously they would get a metal band and and a metal id band on the leg and um, if they're going into a monitoring program they'll get a a transmitter attached to the leg as well um on a a, um a degradable harness so but generally now we're moving away from like we, we put it we generally put microchips in them as you would um sort of like veterinary microchips as you would get in dogs and cats. Um, yeah, so the, the birds in the sanctuary have been monitored for 20, 21 years now, something like that. So a, a, a couple of months ago, um, we went out night catching and managed to catch a bird. We found out what uh, we later found out was called Houdini. <laughs> um, and we recognized him because though he didn't have a metal band or a microchip, he was missing... Uh, he was missing his middle right toe, which which was known previously, and he was in he was in his known territory. So how did um <laughs> how did you get the name Houdini? <laughs> I, I don't actually know. Um, there are in the past there's there's um, they've been fairly loose with the with the naming <laughs> criteria. So so yeah, we've got Houdini. There's a bird called Miss Snuffleupagus, I think. Um, <laughs> um, there's, there's birds like Beaker or, 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 or Munter and um, 
but uh, generally now we try to we try to give them uh, more meaningful names. And uh, all our all our work is is now um, done with with the guidance and the um, sort of co-op uh, collaboration with with the iwi or, or the, the the Maori, uh, the Tangata Fenua, which is uh, sort of the people of of this area of southwestern. So that's uh, Naitau. Uh, Naniwi Naitahu and specifically um, uh, Makafio. So um, the to- the Hastokaweka, uh, the um, Taonga species, so they're sort of like a treasured species to Makafio. And so our, our new naming policies try and reflect how uh, the, that that sort of um, meaningfulness. <laughs> That's 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 pretty pretty fair. <laughs> um, I was going to say, uh, do you have a favourite name? Uh, I, I don't really. <laughs> actually no. I quite like Beaker. Like, Beaker, <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, oh no, but well, there's Bunsen. Oh, there's Bunsen burner and Beaker. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, oh yeah, the, there is a bird known as the Colossus. <laughs> is it huge? I'm, I'm, I haven't actually met the Colossus. I think she's currently missing. I think it's a she, and uh, I think I think she had two two of her partners have both been killed. By we think through like, kiwi to kiwi violence. So um, there is this sort of rumor that she killed both her partners. Anyway, but <laughs> <laughs> they, they they're pretty powerful. Like uh, they've got pretty chunky legs. And how how prevalent is kiwi on kiwi violence? It's hard to say, but um, they, they they do defend territories, and so th- that that's sort of how our catching techniques work. There are two approaches. You either know the kiwi are there and you want to catch them, or you go into an area to to see if there are kiwi. And if you're if you go in into a kiwi's territory and you and you play calls or you or you use um, if you imitate their calls, they get pretty angry. So they go, "Oh, who's this? Uh, who's this unknown kiwi in my territory?" And they'll come over and and try to have a scrap. Uh, and then you um, and then you pounce. <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, so how do they, how do they, uh, how do they actually like try and try and fight? Do, do they, do they kick? Yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah, they, they, they kick each other. Um, I haven't actually seen them fighting. I, I well, I've been personally kicked by Kiwi. <laughs> um, there was a, it's quite a large, fe- oh, something I didn't mention before. The females are considerably larger and angrier than males generally. So there was one particular bird, Rachel. We had we eventually at some point we caught the male, and so we, I went to cut off her transmitter. Yeah, she was in a pretty pretty rough area, in sort of sort of scrubby and ferny, and lots of windfall. And um, it's like she she heard me as I was approaching and and ran off. I chased after her, and then generally a lot of tokoweka will will run, and then once they run, you sort of let them settle and you try again. And you sort of keep doing that until they make a mistake. Um, <laughs> and so Rachel ran from me for, for ages. And um, <laughs> and on the third attempt, I thought I, I thought I had lost her again, but she sort of got caught up against a bank and managed to grab her and cut off her transmitter. Um, and yeah, in, as a thanks. Um, so I, I put her back into a, a hole. She turned around out of the hole, ran at me and kicked <laughs> me in the chest. Um, <laughs> Both legs and then pissed off. <laughs> um, um, so that was the fa- thanks I got for for releasing her. But um, generally, we tend to monitor most mostly males uh, because the males incubate. They'll incubate for a long period during the day, and the females will then swap out during the night for a shorter period. And because we're interested in monitoring chicks and mo- monitoring nests, and we want to be working mostly during the day. When a male is incubating, it will lead you to the nest. I was out of I was out in the field today doing a health check on one of the la- last season's uh, chicks, uh, surviving chicks. So it's it's a chick from a um, a bird called Bambi. Um, so we we call the the birds uh, until they're stoke proof. The birds are called by their their parent um, and the year. So this chick was Bambi twenty twenty one. So Bambi twenty twenty one. Now it's pretty. Pretty close to stoke proof. Uh, we're pretty confident um, it, will, it won't get stoted. Yeah, he's, a, he's a pretty good runner. Um, managed to catch it and yeah, caught it and got um, got it kicked in the face and 
they're, they've got quite long long nails um so you you sort of you often get puncture wounds <laughs> <laughs> bit of a bit of a dangerous prof- profession then chasing after kiwis well yeah mo- most the most most of the the hazards are from running into trees <laughs> does that happen often yes <laughs> um I don't know, I've fallen off small cliffs before. Anyway, we'll not get into that. Um, <laughs> I, I don't want the um, health and safety um, department to get on to my, on my case. But um, <laughs> the, um, yeah, as, as you get close, you sort of switch into this primal predator mode. And um, I certainly get it where you sort of, you see the bird. And if, it, if the bird, the bird usually knows you're there. Um, and sometimes you can see that the bird is about to run. Your peripheral vision just disappears and you just get this tunnel targeted and you, you go for it and you get strung up in, in vines. And there's a thing called bush lawyer here, which is um, it's a type of um, native sort of bramble raspberry thing that's covered in spines. <laughs> and I've definitely launched myself at a bird only to be strung up by bush lawyer. And the um the the bird just casually walks away. Just getting in here with a Jurassic Park reference. <laughs> this just makes me think if you've seen the movie where the the big game hunter is trying to trying to take down the Velociraptors, and they basically outsmart him. And right before he gets killed, he realizes behind him and just goes, "Clever girl." <laughs> <laughs> and so this is all I can picture when Dennis talks about being outsmarted by Kiwis. <laughs> Strung up by Bush Lawyer as a, a little Kiwi waltzes away in front of him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too perfect. Um, most of the time the birds have the upper hand. Um, <laughs> now, when you say launch yourself at the birds, do you l- actually like jump at them and try to tackle them? <laughs> So because, because kiwi are flightless, uh, they, they lack a, a keel. Um, so the sternum isn't well developed because they don't, they don't need that as an anchor point for flight muscles. So in terms of their anatomy, they're sort of a squishy bag on two chunky legs. Um, so you don't want to grab the squishy bag. <laughs> um, so you, you're usually, you aim for the legs, um, basically. <laughs> Yeah, they're pretty robust from the, I was going to say from the waist down, but they don't really have a waist, but, you know, from the knees down. <laughs> I was going to, uh, sorry, just a, just a bit of a different question. Well, I mean, it kind of, kind of fits in. Do you have like a, a day working with the Kiwis that it just stands out as your favorite day or the best day? To be honest, like most days where we, go into the sanctuary uh, are pretty astounding. So I don't really have a favorite. Um, yeah, you get dropped off in some pretty amazing spots up up in the tops of the in the tops of the mountains. And so the, the birds the birds will range from basically they go from sea level um, up into the alpine subalpine. So it's sort of hard to describe um, the 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 environment that they're in down here, but um we're on the end of the Harst Range, which is a mountain range running from Mount Aspiring <clears throat> over to the west coast. Um, so we go from you go the bottom of the sanctuary is is at sea level pretty much, and the top of the sanctuary is up at sixteen hundred meters. Um, and yeah, in the winter it's got snow at the tops. Yeah, it's a pretty astounding place to work work in. So pretty much every day out there is sort of an adventure. Could you could you give us a rundown of an average day, or just like a day, like a one of those days in the field? There, there sort of is no average day. <clears throat> Generally, you'll come up with a plan. You'll you'll get into a helicopter and be dropped in the, in an area, and then immediately your plan is irrelevant because you can't get the signal for the bird, or your landing areas won't work, or um, there's there's like two meters of snow in December. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, not exactly that, but you know, so, so an average day is an average day can be pretty dynamic. The last two days I'll give you as an example. (laughs) So, so today I spent, um, the morning in the office looking at spreadsheets and filling in forms 
um, planning next week's missions and then um, went down to the sanctuary to do a health check on a chick, uh, which took less than an hour and just popped into the bush, grabbed the chick, did it. The day before, I went to do, I was going to do a health check on uh, a young bird from two years ago, Koa, which I thought would be straightforward. So I left at lunch and uh, started driving to the northern end of the sanctuary and a couple of k's from where we usually get into the sanctuary, there's a, um, uh, there was a tree across the road and I got surrounded by cows. And so <laughs> um, already I was, I, was two, I was four kilometers behind on my day <laughs> because I had to walk in further. And uh, I was about sort of an hour and a half walk into where the birds should have been and started going up this ridge. And I was expecting the bird to be about two to 300 meters elevation. Got to two... 100 meters, <laughs> not getting any closer. I can have, I have the simple, si, si, signal, but I'm not getting close. I'm getting to 300 meters, still not getting closer. 400 meters, got to 450 meters and hit a, a, a massive series of bluffs and had a pretty strong signal. And the bird somehow managed to find its way on top of a cliff that I couldn't get up. And um, yeah, there's nothing I could do about it. So I just have to walk, had to walk back out. Um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there's one particular mission, I think it was a bird called Lachlan Jr., I think it's called, where it got dropped off on a rock at, at the bush line, had to get out of the rock, get off the rock and bash our way down through a horrible scrub. Spent, it was about two hours before we got a signal, and then when we tracked in the, into the bird, it was in thick fern, and it just kept getting away from us. And, um, yeah, there's sort of three attempts. Generally, we do three attempts, and by that stage, the birds had enough and we've had enough. And, um, yeah, we just had to walk out. And it was basically it was a 15-hour day getting back to camp at sort of midnight and nothing to show for it. So, <laughs> um, pretty rough. <laughs> I mean, a lot of days are, are pretty horrible, and they'll be the worst day you've ever had until you succeed. And then in retrospect, yeah, those are the best days, I suppose. Dennis actually sent us recordings of his average day in the field. Uh, and, and in this, you can also hear the, the sounds of the radio tracking that he's doing at the same time to locate the bird he's after. He, um, and so he was, he, was, he was updating us step by step with these recordings as he went through his day hunting down this Kiwi. And these are the recordings. <laughs> So it's a lovely day in the Hastokweka Sanctuary. Um, going for a bird koa who eluded me the other day. Um, the signal led me to an impenetrable wall of cliffs. Um, trying again today, going up a, up a different spur. Uh, seems to be working so far, but pretty steep. Had a pretty strong signal, but I've lost it now. Um, <laughs> We're up here somewhere. Oh, listen to that. That is music to my ears. <laughs> the game's afoot. <laughs> the game's <laughs> afoot. <laughs> it's literally a game of hide and seek. <laughs> All right, we've got more from the game. <laughs> We cut back in later, <laughs> crossing over to our correspondent on the ground. <laughs> 350 meters of elevation and climbing. At least I've got a signal. The game doesn't seem to be going too well. <laughs> seems pretty tired. This one might be outsmarting him. Ranger's log. Past date. I love how into this he's getting. <laughs> it's been too long. Too long since my last duck soup. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> too long since my last duck soup. <laughs> <laughs> incredible. <laughs> oh my god. Hang <laughs> on. All right, he's found a he's found a um, signal there. That's the sound of Koa on a different cliff. 
Oh no. What a bastard. <laughs> He's on a different cliff. <laughs> <laughs> He's 350 metres up. He's on a different cliff. <laughs> oh my God. All right. The last message we received. All right. So we're getting close now. The terrain is pretty grim. And that's it. That's the last we heard of him. (laughs) (laughs) The last we heard of him until he called me. Did he find it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But the first thing he said when he answered the phone was, don't worry, it's not the bird's blood. It's mine. (laughs) (laughs) Who said kiwis weren't a dangerous subject animal? (laughs) <laughs> well, he had some battle scars. I was like, how much? He video called me and so he literally had it in his hands and he was like, I've got it. <laughs> he like sat there, um, put it down and fully changed over the, the tracking beacon. <laughs> and at a certain point, these feathers just went, Oof, and excited everywhere. And he was just like, oh, don't worry, that happens. And he's like, he's telling us it's this uh, shock molting. Shock so essentially he, just, he, he described it like a squid shooting no, at you. And he was like, no, just that's not true. <laughs> it's, defi- it's, it's definitely not a uh, defense mechanism. It's just got to be like a, a stress thing. <laughs> So this is an absolutely incredible average day tracking stuff. And uh, yeah, it's fantastic. But on the flip side of this, he has told us how, um, yeah, there's also days where they don't catch the birds, where they're stuck in the office and things just go wrong. The, The worst days are sort of in the office when you're staring at a computer and the internet's not working and you're... You're working in, on a cloud system and, and it's sunny outside. And my, I, from my window in my office, I can see the mountains. So You take, um, you take the day of, of crappy weather and no success finding birds over that any time? Yeah. I mean, I suppose the most emotional days are, are, when, are when you get a mortality signal mm-hmm. on, c- coming from a bird and you go out there and you have to retrieve a – yeah, you have to retrieve a um, – a body. How does that work? And is that basically it picking up that it hasn't moved in a long time? Is yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Yeah, basically. So, so the, uh, the small transmitters we put on young birds, uh, generally have a, an alive signal and a mortality signal. So the, the, they give out a series of pulses and the, the tempo of the pulse, um, sort of tells you what's, what's happening with the bird. The adults have a pretty, pretty smart transmitter on them that uh, give you a series of outputs um, telling you the average activity for last, uh, I think for the last week. And they also detect when the activity levels change and they go into an incubating mode. So you get, you get to, they tell you if the bird's incubating, not, not incubating um, or, or, or dead. Um, often, often a mortality signal on an adult bird is not an actual. It's not actually dead. It's just the transmitter's fallen off. <laughs> I was just going to say, um, the with the with the finding tracking the mortality rates and finding the the dead kiwis is a. Uh, it must be pretty yeah, pretty rough. I guess. How do you? <laughs> yeah, is it is it kind of hard on those days when you when that happens to feel like they're going to pull through? Yeah, I mean. Yeah, it's like you 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 invest so much time into it, and yeah, it can be pretty hard. But for ex- so yeah, for example, the 2019-2020 breeding season uh, was the first breeding season after an aerial pre- aerial predator control, and that year we had um, I think ten or ten or eleven chicks. I think we had fourteen go to hatch, ten or eleven chicks running around, and then. Um, Two, only two survived out of that cohort, and mm-hmm. none of those had a confirmed predation. There might, might have been one suspected, but the rest seemed to have died of s- some sort of environmental cause. They were they were in bad body condition, and we, we think it's it was to do, it was a really crappy year 
weather-wise. Uh, it's like sort of really cold over the hatching season. Um, record amounts of rain, like the, the roads were being washed out. We lost bridges. And so, and even, even this year where we have had, we had, again, we had sort of 10 or 11 chicks hatch. We currently have four surviving out of that. We think we, we've had five or six probably as predation. Yeah, so pr- predation is one thing, but even controlling predators doesn't mean um, you'll have a successful breeding season. It sort of makes you realize that, yeah, how hard life is. <laughs> um, so out of the, uh, as I mentioned before, we sort of monitor about 50, uh, 50 pairs um, of that sort of a third for some reason won't breed in a, in a year, in one in particular season. A third will attempt breeding and at some point the nest will fail. Mm-hmm. And then maybe a third uh, will go to hatch. So we, we often, um, as we're sort of ma- our, our work plan is based on getting tw- t- roughly 20 nests monitored. Um, of those 20 nests, we'll get, yeah, like the last two years, we've got about 10 chicks going to hatch. And then of those 10, um, yeah, currently we're at 30, 30, whatever, 36% survival this year. And the previous year was, yeah, less than 20%. Um, but uh, that being said, um, if, you're, if you're thinking about a bird, yeah, this, it's an animal, the, the, these kiwi, um, a natural lifespan, we don't actually know how long they live, but uh, current estimate for Haas Tokoweka could be 50, 60, 50 or 60 years or even oh, wow. more. Um, so if you think about that, um, they don't need to have a successful nest every year. Mm. Um, so it just might be, part of it might be is that, is that um, over the lifetimes a pair needs two, two successful nests over 50 or 60 years to replace themselves. Um, so we might be expecting too much of them really. <laughs> but um, yeah, f- from, from a ma- our management conservation point of view, um, it's a, yeah, it's a slow, slow, slow game. So yeah, our, our population <laughs> growth is pretty small and we're already dealing with really small numbers. So I guess the other thing I wanted to ask about, which I'm, I'm sort of going off track a bit here, just cause I just popped into my head when you were talking about um, having those, those days where everything's not going well and then it, it jumps in and you, know, you find something and, and something goes your way. Uh, Alex made me look up photos of, of kiwis with an egg, you know, female, uh, kiwis and egg inside them and I just I've, I haven't been able to get it out of my head this whole time we've been talking <laughs> because it's it's a bizarre thing like we, we I think most people know the kiwis aren't built really to be birds um but but I mean how is it is there a lot of hand holding in the process of of getting kiwis through that breeding cycle like like because they just don't look like they're built for that either um yeah it's an interesting point um yeah, I think the, the the kiwi egg is sort of twenty percent of its body weight. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so just a sort of a illustrative um, statistic is that um, eggs in the wild. This is based on North Island browns, but I think um, so. Eggs in the wild will have sort of a fifty to sixty percent hatch rate, hatch success. Huh. Um, when when the eggs go through Operation Nest Egg, which is when we um, lift the egg and incubate them artificially, that success rate goes uh, goes way up to sort of almost ninety percent, uh, or over ninety percent mm-hmm. in some cases. Um, and I think that it's not that they're, um, I suppose it's not that the breeding system doesn't work. Um, it's a sort of lots of different factors. I mean. Um, the environment is full of full of things that that make things go wrong. So you can get a bacterial infections. Mm. Um, often egg, eggs will often crack, um, um, oh, okay. and um, so bacteria can get in there. And um, uh, often another thing that can happen is that the the chick can be malpositioned in the egg. There's an uh, there's an on one end of an egg. There's an air cell 
So j- just before a few days before the the chick is going to hatch, it puts its bill through the air cell, and will start. It will go from respirating through the membrane of the egg and start breathing through um, uh, breathing air normally. So it does that. Mm. It uses the air cell, the, the air in the air cell, and then it it sort of breaks through the um, the egg there as well. And so if the chick is malpositioned relative to the air cell. If it doesn't have access to that air cell, it will die. And so it's situations like that where if it's incubated artificially, uh, we can intervene and do an assisted hatch. Well, I don't do that. Um, that goes to specialists in, in various egg facilities. They're pretty special places. Like the first time I did an egg lift and took it up to one of the these rearing centers, uh, I just thought it took me back to like Jurassic Park um, where, where they're... Um, <laughs> Where the dinosaurs are hatching, it's it's basically like that. So you, if um, if the eggs if the eggs are eggs are old enough, um, you can put them down on a bench and you sort of tap and whistle at them, and the egg will respond and it will it will it will make little noises and and wobble, and it's just I, it's hard to describe, it, but it's just yeah, it's amazing. Have you uh, have you watched like had a bit of your own Jurassic Park moment where you've literally watched one of them poke their way out of the egg? Um, often that takes a few days, but I've seen, I've seen the various stages. (laughs) Yeah. So it'll take a couple of days. Uh, sometimes it can take up to like five or six days. Um, um, I've, I've watched an egg that, um, I've lifted personally and, and partially incubated on my lap. Um, I've, I've watched that, um, sort of start breaking through its shell and that was a pretty special moment. Um, I'm mindful of the time, um, and we've been I was going to say. for like an hour and a half now. Um, so I think what we might do is I can keep talking. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I just I didn't, didn't want to like make you feel like you were forced. Um, no. I think what we well, might... you just you, you, when you when you want to stop talking, I'll stop. Talking. <laughs> um, I think what we might do is jump into a couple of audience questions that we plucked out. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and run run the gauntlet of those. Um, I'll, I'll kick it off with, with Jackie's, uh, who wants to know what are the most effective trapping methods for the invasive species you guys have to deal with? And, um, when are Kiwis most vulnerable to those predators? So, uh, the, the easier part of that question is, um, is, is the second part. So <laughs> the, the most vulnerable when as a chick, yep. pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from, from hatching to, um, to about, 1500 grams they're vulnerable uh so we've been doing some uh investigations into our listener statistics from the first two episodes and apparently 13 percent of our audience is from the u.s so what's 1500 grams in american for us alex around 3.3 pounds (laughs) and the adults are getting to three to four kilograms as females and in pounds that is around six and a half to nine pounds they're carrying all that weight in the legs they're big stumpy legs (laughs) (laughs) So our standard trapping, <laughs> it's a difficult one. So we've got our best, we, we run off, our network is based on um, uh, department conservation best practice, which has to um, factor in a lot of potential side effects. So our trap boxes are built to withstand KIA interference. So KIA are this um, are a notorious, <laughs> infamous, but also endangered South Island parrot um, often known as an alpine parrot because they, they, they often are found in alpine areas. But yet yeah, Kia, because they're so intelligent and uh, curious, uh, will take apart uh, traps um, and try to break into them and then end up getting snapped. Uh, our boxes have been built to withstand Kia. It's a, it's a tricky question. It sort of um, depends on the environment you're in. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and how intensive and your and, and what your goals are. So um, down here we run a network that's focused on catching stoats. We're not too worried about rats um, because rats don't tend to affect kiwi. Mm-hmm. Um, a, lo- a lot of our traps catch. We do catch rats in our traps, but they're more of a bycatch. And a trap that has caught a rat often is a because our, our tunnels are double set, so you've got two traps. If you catch a trap um, rat in one, that's a really good bait for a stoat. So often you'll get a rat 
and stowed on one side. My favorite one is where you get a double stowed. <laughs> it's so satisfying. <laughs> um, but in say say uh, in sort of backyard or community type groups, you might be able to be more flexible with the techniques. So um, because you can spend more time. Uh, so there are things you can do, like if you have a fresh stoat and you're resetting the trap, you can uh, rub the scent of the stoat around on the trap. You can change different types of baits. Yeah, it's a very. It's, I could I could go on. You could you could cut out the anal glands of a stoat and distill it into a into an oil that you spray around. And um, but I wouldn't recommend that unless you've got a <laughs> unless you're pretty careful. Yeah. Uh, that smell doesn't go away. Uh, so the Department of Conservation has uh, released a trapping guide. So if you if you go on um, to the DOC website, that gives you a pretty good rundown of the different techniques. Um, and Peter had uh, two questions as well. She wanted to know, do you get annoyed when Americans call the, the kiwi fruits kiwis? <laughs> and... Um, and do you have recordings of the noises that Kiwis make? Um, I don't get annoyed. I don't know, it doesn't happen very much. We have this great diagram up in the office of how to prepare a Kiwi, uh, which shows um, <laughs> a, a Kiwi bird being dissected and, and inside it's a Kiwi fruit. <laughs> yeah, but we don't come across that very much. It's sort of like that, I don't know, I, I, I found that um, in Australia and New Zealand, there's no, when you say chips, Depending on the context, there's no confusion between hot chips and 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 crisps. So it's just chips and chips. I mean, kiwi, yeah. kiwi and kiwi. You just know. And you're not going to go out <laughs> chasing after kiwi fruit. So, and you're not going to be eating kiwi birds. So some like. <laughs> um, what was the second question? Oh, recordings. So um, yeah, we've got a whole library of uh, recordings that we use for uh, either catching kiwi or as reference, and we also put remote audio recorders out in various areas uh, to try and either sort of remotely estimate how Kiwi numbers, so there's a survey technique or like Kiwi call counts, um, which can be used to estimate Kiwi population size in certain areas, and also we, we put out recorders in areas where we hope there might be, where we suspect there might be Kiwi, so um, I can't really do a good imitation myself. Um, often, uh, so we we use um, these plastic or metal shepherd's whistles. So this is a, a shepherd's whistle we use to imitate a, a male kiwi call. Yeah, um, and the the female is sort of it's harder to imitate. Yeah. I mean, you are holding the whistle and you did just say you can imitate the kiwi with the whistle. You know what you have to do now, right? I know. <laughs> um, yeah, I can try. I mean, I'm not very good with this um, with this metal one. I've, I've lost my plastic one. But, um, anyway, I'll, I'll give it a go. Uh, it's not going to <laughs> That's right. be quite high-pitched as well. So <laughs> I make lots of excuses, but anyway, here we go. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm convinced. Kind of like that. <laughs> kind of like that. Um, I'd believe it. <laughs> okay, so that kiwi fruit poster that Dennis mentioned a few minutes ago, where a kiwi gets dissected into a kiwi fruit, it's fantastic. He sent it to us and we'll put it up on our Instagram the day after this episode gets published. He mentions those Kiwi calls and you know we got them from him. <laughs> and they are amazing. And I promise, I swear, they're not taken straight from Jurassic Park. Yeah, I mean, sometimes yeah, you can fool them pretty well um, because uh, yeah, it's not a, it's not a very good imitation, but they'll it's 
sort of interesting enough to them, they'll come over and see mm-hmm. what's going on. Connor, Connor had a question and it goes back to the x-rays of the Kiwis oh, yeah. and how they look a lot like dinosaurs, obviously like birds are dinosaurs, but yeah. he was, he wants to know, I, one of the things he was suggesting was, do you reckon that dinosaurs were actually just giant Kiwis roaming around? The Um, I suppose, I suppose evolution isn't, isn't really a linear thing. So, um, similar, similar sort of things evolve, go extinct and re-evolve. Um, but sometimes, so when you're out night, when you're out doing these night surveys, I've definitely had times where we've sort of stumbled into a Kiwi's territory by, almost by accident and, a fee- one of the females will start blaring at you and like thumping through the bush and you're like it's it's they're, they're dinosaurs they're like <laughs> there's no doubt um did you have any other audience questions on your your end alex because i'm out on um, mine um the only other other questions that i think i've got left are just um wrapping up and uh so uh, for people that might want get, want to get more involved or help out with Kiwis or just conservation in New Zealand in general, um, do you have any suggestions for them? Yeah, I mean, there's there's depending on where you are, there's there's sort of all sorts of opportunities, um, particularly with Predator Free 2050. Most regions in New Zealand will have c- community trapping projects you can get involved. I mean, the whole it's not just about Kiwi; it's about looking at the big picture. Uh, but yeah, if you look at the big picture. Uh, it can be pretty overwhelming. So it's like think think big and do small. So look what's in your area. A lot of the North Island, in areas where they're Kiwi on the North Island, a lot of those projects are actually community-run projects. If you go to Kiwis for, kiwisforkiwi.org, you'll be able to find more information about Kiwi and what community groups are out there. Um, and Doc often has volunteer opportunities in various places so if you go to the department of conservation website and look look up i think it's probably how to get involved um the sort of volunteer positions um that pop up occasionally yeah and if you're in an area that doesn't have that sort of thing um there's heaps of resources out there for you to to set it up yourself as well if you want to get start start these projects yeah um, I mean, literally anywhere you are, like it's like outside of New Zealand, um, particularly now where, where, where everyone's sort of been uh, anchored to wherever they are, mm. have a look at the environment outside, even in urban environments, find out what's there, find out what's, what's rare, find out what used to be there a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, or even, even beyond that. Um, yeah, because like, well, for me, like, particularly having, like, being having been a geologist and thinking in deep time, um, it's not just about saving the species. You have species. You have to work on um, looking at the the whole context of that species. I mean, often conservation is 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 geared towards those. Um, um, charismatic, unique, strange animals, or just because things are rare. But those things, um, if they don't have anywhere to live, if they don't have anywhere to go, yeah, it's pretty much stamp collecting. <laughs> cool. I just wanted to say thank you heaps for coming on. It's, it's been great. <laughs> uh, thank you. So we just want to acknowledge that parts of episode three of Life on the Brink were recorded on the lands of Turbal, Yagara and Garingai people. Thanks again to Dennis for jumping on a call with us for a good two and a half hours while we geeked out about Kiwis and sorry we made you blow through the data cap on your work phone in the process. You can follow more of the adventures of Dennis and his stuffed fox called Savivian on Instagram at viv.fox. Uh, And also, if you're an absolute Jurassic Park nerd like myself, um, make sure you check out the egg photos that are up on our Instagram page at Life on the Brink podcast. Uh, And if you want to see what the trap boxes or the telemetry equipment looks like, we'll be uploading that too. If you haven't already, remember to follow, rate and review Life on the Brink on whichever podcast app you're listening to this on. 
We have six whole reviews on iTunes already, and only one of them was me. So we're doing a bang up job already. Killing it. I swear one of them wasn't me. (laughs) (laughs) If this is the first episode you've heard, our first two releases on Glossy Black Cockatoos and Tree Climbing Lions are also available wherever you're hearing this or on our website, lifeonthebrinkpodcast.com. Thanks to Angus Bazina for getting that website up and running. Thanks to Kyle Morley for our theme music. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. So make sure you keep an eye on our Instagram page if you want to find out what we're talking about next week. We're not giving it away. (laughs) See you there. Oh,